Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. about music okay um you know music's very important to us on this show it's important on a lot of shows uh and there are times when i personally give it a lot of thought and so i had thought that if things had t- <laughs> this is so sad if things had turned out differently last night if things had turned out more conclusively the way that i had hoped that they would turn out uh, if in fact it was very clear that joe biden was the next president of the united states I was going to open the show today with the Bob Dylan song, Ring Them Bells, although I was going to use the I'm with her version of Ring Them Bells, even though like a lot of Bob Dylan songs, I don't really know what it's about, but it's sort of about ringing them bells anyway, you know, which also kind of conjures up uh, England after uh, England on VE Day you know, during the war, they didn't ring church bells. In Britain, and then on VE Day, all the bells rang. Anyway, you see where I was going with all this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, so anyway, that's that's not where we are at all right now. We're with lawyers, guns, and money, uh, which is probably a pretty good guide to the next four or five days, if not more, in Michigan, um, and maybe other places as well. So that tells you that, and then let me tell you one other thing, which is that. On the day after the 2016 election, we had a certain lineup, which we are bringing back today, although the one exception being Azar Nafisi, the great writer about uh, Iran uh, and and just an amazing person. She was with us that day, and she is unable to join today. She sends her best. Azar is always great to talk about, talk to at times like this, because it's kind of like she, as bad as things are, She's kind of thinking, yeah, but Iran, you know, it's not Iran after the Islamic Revolution, right? It's not that. And I think she would probably still think that, but we don't know. We'll get her on as soon as we can. She said she does send her her best wishes, and uh, I'm sure she will join us soon. But we are also very lucky to have back the other two gentlemen who joined us uh, on our first show and then our first show after the 2016 election, whom I will introduce in two seconds. And I will just tell you that. Uh, the role of Azarna Fisfisi on the show today is played by Chris Murphy, who will be joining us later on in the show. So um, 
Joining us right now is David Folkenflik, uh, NPR's media correspondent. He joins us through the miracle of Skype. Michael Lynch uh, is a professor of philosophy and director of the Humanities Institute at the University of Connecticut and the author of Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in uh, Political Culture. Um, and so, Michael, I'll have you get us going here. Um, and, you know, as has become your want, you are looking for traces of humanity and civilization and things like that <laughs> and civilizedness. Uh, so, so give us uh, some tiny little silver linings right now. Well, you're right. I'm always trying to look for some traces of humanity. Sometimes, I have to admit, over the last four years, in fact, a lot of the time, it's been really hard to uh, always find those traces or um, <clears throat> at least to find them as frequently as you'd like. But I think, I guess I'd love to start out by just noting two things that I'm thankful for. There's a lot that I'm not thankful for and a lot of deep anxiety that we're all going through. But it might be helpful given all that anxiety, free-floating anxiety, which seems to be part of our existential just existence right now. Um, which last night did not help with, uh, two things I'm thankful for. First, just the fact that there's been lots of turnout. Uh, you know, the, the most massive turnout in the, an American presidential election in several generations. It's really, I think, that is important because people who vote uh, for the first time, uh, many of people were voting for the first time in this election. Um, I was standing at the polls uh, myself, uh, waving a, a Biden sign, uh, and helping some of the local Democrats at some point. And I was delighted to see so many people coming up, passing us and saying, yeah, I'm not here to vote for the first time. The fact is, is that people who vote, you know, voted uh, yesterday, those folks and uh, for the first time will, will probably vote again. And that's good for democracy. And then the other thing I just want to point out is that we should be thankful for is that there wasn't a lot of violence. Um, you know, uh, there's still still unfortunately plenty of time for disturbance to happen but uh although there were isolated incidents um you know the election has gone on so far peacefully and i think that's also something sort of sad to have to say this but it's something that i'm thankful for right now right it could be accused of being a low bar to clear we had an it election is incredibly low bar to clear <laughs> we didn't uh, shoot i mean and as we'll, we'll no doubt have time to return to throughout today's show uh you know, we've been we've <laughs> the bar the bar has gotten pretty low uh, right now with American democracy. The fact that I mean, who would have thought? Uh, I certainly would have. Uh, you know, ten years ago, I wouldn't have said. Uh, thought to myself, well, you know, here here's a good thing. Nobody, not too many people, you know, killed each other yesterday during the the uh, uh, the election in the United States of America. That's bizarre that we have to say that, but here I'm thankful for it anyway. It does put me in mind of a former Hartford police chief who, in explaining police behavior when they arrested Ken Krajewski, who was kind of a journalist and crusader, he said, it's not as if we electrocuted him. And I thought, well, no, that's true, Daryl. You did not electrocute Ken, Ken Krajewski. All right. So, David, another thing that's good about a democracy is a functioning press. And not for the first time, the, the first time being really right after the 2016 election, I, and I think a lot of journalists, are saying to ourselves, do we know how to do our jobs? Are, I feel like I've been playing in the NBA, but I've been kicking the ball because I didn't know. You're not supposed to. There's just sort of a sense in which on these occasions 
when reality doesn't map well at all onto previous expectations, I, I just... I find my, and I start reading articles by David Volkenflik and and Margaret Sullivan and Eric Bollert, and I think you know maybe do we know how to do our jobs? That's a pretty bad question to ask you, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyway. Well, I hope so. You know, you 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 want to keep working in this trade, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think that we can acknowledge two things at the same time. I think that the projections and the expectations that were set were, even though we we offer all kind, and by we I mean journalists offer all kinds of caveats and say, look, there are margins of error, and also you know let's be humble because of 2016, and we didn't really get everything quite right there, although it might not have been as bad as you thought it was. Um, those aren't looking great right now, and I'm not saying that they're not looking great whether or not Biden wins, but there are a bunch of sort of key states that really badly performed against what the blend of reputable polls that were presented by such high profile polling gurus as the New York Times and Nate Cohn there or Nate Silver in 538, Harry Enten and CNN. These are smart, decent, good people who are actually pretty transparent working through things online with you and explaining how they get there. But there's kind of a certitude being presented. And to simply say to folks, look, it's 75% likely that Biden wins such and such or, or that, 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 that Democrats hold on to the Senate and then say, well, we said it was one in four that it wouldn't happen. Uh, so that's a big chance, too. And so if it happens, we didn't get it wrong. It's like, you know, my best friend from childhood called me up last night. He said, I remembered when we were in high school and you said, listen, when the weather forecaster tells you there's a 50% chance of rain, it means he doesn't want to be thought of as getting it wrong. All of these things are possible. But we know as, as adults that all these things are possible. If things are presented as prescriptive rather than descriptive, I think for polls along the way this fall, I think that they end up really kind of misleading the public. The second thing is, so, so I think that's a problem. And that's baked into this sort of soberness and the confusion that you saw playing out on, on the analysts, whether it was, you know, Steve Karnacki, who I think is pretty great on MSNBC, John King's very good, uh, or you have... Uh, you know, Major Garrett on CBS, uh, uh, Bill Hemmer on, on Fox News, the like. The second thing I got to say is for last night anyway, I thought there was a professionalism that obtained uh, even on Fox, which is in some ways given the question of whether Trump would lose the most important outlet for both the president's state of mind and for uh, the framing that is uh, absorbed by so many of his uh, supporters and people who uh, fan out from that, in the conservative media. Uh, I thought it was pretty professional. I thought it, people tried hard to keep to facts. You know, there was some punditry for sure, but I thought that when the president misspoke, look, it took Chris Wallace uh, stepping into the breach a number of times on Fox to to knock down the president's claims and claims of his surrogates. But I think people were presented with realism. But as I tried to indicate in a column I wrote yesterday for NPR, you know, that this isn't election night, as we now know, this is election week. And the question is, what happens Today, tomorrow, Friday, what messages do people hear in the media? How tightly professional or how speculative or how willing are people to indulge outside voices to just make claims that have no basis? You know, Newt Gingrich came on Fox and Friends this morning and talked about not the possibility, not the potential, but the probability of fraud in votes because Bill, Joe Biden was adding thousands or tens of thousands of votes uh, to his count in key states in the upper Midwest, suggesting this was sort of magical thinking and fraud. That's that's not you know, this was actually kind of pretty likely to happen, given the, the 
nature of the precincts that we're starting to report. So, you know, I really think the question is, how are we doing this week so that people can absorb what happens regardless of who wins in a way that people understand that their institutions are not uniformly failing them? You know, Michael, building on everything that David said, and, and, and I agree with everything that David said, and I agree about the professionalism of, of last night, although at a certain point, Steve Kornacki, who I've I've interviewed and I know him to be a very nice and very smart person, he seemed a little bit like a manager at Applebee's coming back to your table to tell you that your entrees will be out any minute. You know, except he's already told you that two or three times. Um, but um, but but Michael, the there's the another... nicest, most earnest Applebee's manager ever, yes. though. I mean, yes. let's be clear, and well, absolutely like very decent Applebee's manager knows yes, what temperature. Kn- yes, knows exactly what temperature your chicken fingers are being cooked at, and the likelihood that they will be ready within the next three minutes. Okay, so but you know, Michael, there's another way in which I I feel kind of a, something broke down here. It's not just the press's inability to, you know, use polling information that was reliable in order to create a framework for understanding what's going to happen. There's sort of a deeper problem, too, that, you know, I assume, I guess, that if you're the president and you don't do much about, for example, a pandemic and 230,000 of your citizens die, you know, and then you wrap up your campaign, your, your closing message of your campaign is that, you're going to fire Dr. Fauci and this campaign was rigged anyway. I'll see you Tuesday. You know, that they're just, you know, when you look at so many aspects of President Trump and he's just not, not presidential. And I find myself thinking, well, there's just kind of no way people can go along with this, particularly this whole pandemic thing, you know, and, and I guess that's another thing, another way in which I feel like I don't understand reality anymore because clearly it's not as big a problem as <laughs> I thought it was going to be for him. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it that, you know, one of the things that we learned, right, uh, and this is going to be remain the case no matter who wins. One of the things that we really are taking away from this is that the information bubbles that, you know, we talked about, we talked about four years ago, um, you know, they, they've really hardened into concrete bunkers of information that is to say that another way of putting that is you're like you say well which rea- what reality you know i don't recognize reality well in a sense to speak very loosely which reality uh, it's it's clear much more clear now i think than uh it was uh just a couple of days ago just how deeply entrenched voters are on their different views of the world uh there you know the idea that i mean i think in sort of in in you know past norms past expectations would have got us thinking just as you said that look you know um we're right in the middle of uh, the worst crisis that has hit the country uh uh, for for certainly since 9/11, in many ways far more than that since World War II, in terms of death, this is a, a tremendous crisis, and yet to a large bulk of the public, it either is a hoax or it's just not as important as other people that other things to them, particularly matters having to do presumably with their identity. I think one of the things that's another thing that this really illustrates is that our political convictions are now, uh, A, first reflecting our identities. They're the, they're the product of our identities. And therefore, when people attack our political convictions, 
we not surprisingly take it personally because they are reflecting our identities. And secondly, we're incorporating more and more of life, of reality into our identities. What I mean by that is just what we were talking about. Increasingly, the pandemic itself, its very existence has become part of an identity to certain people, uh, much like climate change. Is it real? Well, for some people, if you say that it's real, that indicates that you are sort of you, you've you have have announced a hostile view towards their own identity, an identity which is wrapped up with the view that climate change is not real and perhaps the pandemic is not real. When things get like that, when social media information bubbles become so hardened that they actually are a reflecting our identities and b spreading to all sorts of issues which don't on the surface seem anything to do with politics, that is health, climate, things of that sort. I think it's perhaps not surprising that we get a lot of um, uh, surprises in polling data. I mean, you look back, if we had really taken seriously how entrenched these political convictions and cultural identities are, then we might begin to realize that, yeah, actually, Trump's strategy was a good one. Double down on the base and get people out to vote. Motivate them based on those convictions that reflect their identity to see this as a threat of a, a war of good against evil and get them out to the polls. So, David, uh, full conflict, uh, let's uh, go right to one of the areas where I think we have some concern here, which is that uh, no sooner had we digested that the evening was going to go maybe differently than we thought, uh, then we, we already knew that Trump was going to say some stuff, you know, and he had already telegraphed what kind of stuff uh, it was going to be. Um, and... Uh, nonetheless, because he's the president and it's a presidential election, it's kind of hard to argue against putting it on the air, although some people are doing exactly that. But let's uh, listen to uh, President Trump speaking last night. I believe this is uh, a kind of an uh, edited version here, but speaking last night uh, in the 2 a.m. Eastern Time Hour. Millions and millions of people voted for us tonight and uh, a very sad group of people is trying to disenfranchise that group of people, and we won't stand for it. We will not stand for it. We're winning Michigan. By, I'll tell you, I looked at the numbers. I said, whoa. I looked, I said, wow, that's a lot. And we're winning Wisconsin. I said, we're winning. We don't need all of them. We won states, and all of a sudden, I said, what happened to the election? It's off. And we have all these announcers saying, what happened? And then they said, oh, and all of a sudden, everything just stopped. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. So, David, I mean, we could parse this quote forever, and there are all kinds so of things, <laughs> so many things that are wrong in it. But I mean, one question is: do, do you even just run it without saying some stuff beforehand? Like, we're about to play a clip by the president, but it's like it's full of stuff that's not true. Even if some of the stuff were true, like if everything just stopped, he'd lose. <laughs> He's behind electoral votes. You know, right. he spoke. I, Go ahead. He spoke last night, or excuse me, I say last night, but it was about 2.30 in the morning 
Uh, and I, I was up till about four, four thirty this morning. So, you know, I wanted to make sure to watch it and see how the uh, outlets handled it because that really frames it for those people who are watching. And one question I had, one thing I've suggested over the years is, you know, at a certain point when the president's uh, misleading statements and lies, you know, it might be worth, this is me talking, not NPR talking, but might be worth taping the president, running him at a slight delay so that you have the ability to slap up chirons or stop time and say, this actually is not a true statement, but we'll go, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, he's actually X or Y, you know, on really flagrant statements. He let certain things go for rhetoric, but really flagrant statements. People didn't do that. Um, And last night, NBC, MSNBC uh, dumped out of his remarks and contradicted him in terms of the claims he made about the states he was winning. They said that's just not true. Uh, And it's become even less true as the hours have elapsed since his statements. But even in the moment he was speaking, a lot of what he said about certain key swing states weren't true. Or if they become true, ultimately, they weren't true at the time he said it. And there was no way he could be clear on that. Um, You know, secondly, you know, let's think about the role of the president. The president is the head of government and the president is uh, a politician by definition, whomever that might be. The president is also head of state. And that's so, you know, you're combining in what Britain would be the prime minister and the queen's roles. Right. And that sounds like like kind of highfalutin political, you know, political science, political philosophy way of thinking about it. But given that the president is the head of state, he or she has an extraordinary responsibility to help preserve the integrity of the electoral process and the integrity of people or people's uh, perception and respect for that process. What you heard in that clip uh, from uh, about 11 hours ago, as you and I are talking live at this moment, um, was the head of state of the United States undermining uh, his supporters, uh, you know, uh, many, you know, many, many, many tens of millions of Americans and other other supporters besides in having faith in the American electoral system. He accused it of fraud. He said people were stealing it. He said it without any evidence or grounds to argue that. Uh, And and that's incredibly troubling. And that's not a fact check, except for the fact there's no proof for it. But it's also a uh, it's almost like a, a civic ethics check where there are things that are not partisan that nonetheless or not ideological that nonetheless contradict what how this president uh speaks publicly. And that's really complicated and problematic. I must say that after his remarks in varying ways, all of the networks uh, had senior figures there uh, uh, dissecting, contradicting, and in fairly brown terms, uh, uh, condemning what the president had to say, which if he were to win was also a troubling circumstance. You don't want uh, people who are trying to present uh, straight ahead and Uh, non-agenda driven uh, news to the public being thrust in the position of saying this person is damaging the body politic. He is wounding us collectively. But that is what happened. We, you know, we run up against a problem that the acid tongued press critic Jay Rosen, uh, who we're both quite familiar with, uh, brings up time and again, which is, I mean, for example, his argument for never putting Kellyanne Conway on television is, does she say things that are true? Does she enlarge our understanding uh, of uh, of what's happening? Is she a source of reliable information? Um, and the answer is no. So you never put her on TV. That's his, his argument. There's a problem when it's the president, right? When the, anything the president says is at least theoretically news. But it does bump up, up against Jay's point, right? If you put stuff on the air that's not true, 
you know, no matter how quickly you counteract it or argue against it or anything, you do feel like you've done some epistemic damage somehow and that like it's just not what we signed up for right i mean if i had a press conference to say that i a 66 year old man with bad knees have run the mile in less than three minutes no one would come to my press conference because i'm obviously lying um you know but but here <laughs> we have to put things on the air that we know are lies and i'm I, just give me your your thoughts and then we're going to go to break Look, we all have uh, seen presidents who spin, seen presidents who mislead, who've seen president. I mean, Bill Clinton lied about having an involvement uh, with an intern many decades his younger, uh, uh, his junior. Uh, this president does this on a different level, and he does it to damage our understanding of what happens around us. I've argued that his remarks should often be taken on a slight delay so that fact checkers and presenters and anchors can figure out how to frame what's being said. Uh, I thought Chris Wallace of Fox News actually did a wonderful job when he presented a, a lengthy interview with the president where at certain moments he stopped the interview and in studio presented some fact checking and then went back to the live interview. But, you know, it's hard to pull off. It's hard to do. I do think what the president says is news. I don't think that we abdicate our control over how we decide what we present and how we present it simply by virtue of his office. All right, let's take a break here. We're going to come back with more of David, although we're going to lose him pretty soon to a, another station. Uh, and Michael Lynch, and eventually we will add Chris Murphy in here too. Because I really love to count. Sometimes I sit and count all day. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I get carried away I count slowly, slowly, slowly getting faster Once I start counting, it's very hard to stop So uh, we're back. Uh, thank you for joining us for our quadrennial after the presidential election show. David Folkenflick is NPR's media correspondent. He joins us by Skype. He's got to leave in a few minutes. Uh, Michael Lynch is a professor of philosophy and director of the Humanities Institute at the University of Connecticut uh, and author of Know-It-All, Society, Truth, and Arrogance of Political Culture. So, you know, there's sort of another part of this uh, that I'd like you to both talk a little bit about because I think underlying... Um, everything that happened last night. And Michael, I'm going to have you start, but uh, Jelani Cobb, the great uh, journalist with The New Yorker, uh, tweeted what a lot of people were saying. Absolutely stunning to me that a person with this record of abject failure and a quarter of a million dead Americans strewn in the background could not only retain support, but benefit from a surge in voting. No matter how this turns out, we are in deep trouble collectively. And, and I will say that the person who lives with me <laughs> said almost exactly the same thing. Her, her other line of the night was that this feels like a near-death experience without the comforting white light. But, um, you know, there's that kind of sense like, well, you, you know, back to what I was saying before, that there's some kind of departure from civility and norms. Um, and so what does that mean that so many people are willing to join Trump with it? Actually, David, I'm going to have you answer first because I'm just seeing the clock and you got to go pretty soon. So, David, just yeah, your, your thoughts first. Just don't, to be clear, you, you're trying to get at the question of how is your reality uh, clanging so badly against yeah. uh, the wall of what you're seeing play out on TV and online right now? Right. Because, the, the, you know, look, you, you live in a fairly blue part of America. 
uh, and uh, Connecticut was not in doubt, to be sure. And, you know, regardless of what partisan or political affiliations you may have in your privacy of the of the voting booth, you you seem to me from our exchanges over the years to adhere to kind of a genial enlightenment sense of the world where a certain kind of reason and fact based uh, approach, uh, even if you have certain instincts and gut impulses, uh, nonetheless, you kind of want to be convinced of certain arguments and certain people just vote differently than that. And so even if people, uh, you know, you see a real strength for Trump uh, uh, in certain, for example, farming parts of Iowa, even as their industries have been undercut by a lot of the president's trade policies with China and other major trading partners. Right. And yet they feel that he represents what they want in government. And people used to use economic anxiety as shorthand. Some people ascribe racism for an element of it. And any or all of these things may be true. Uh, but I think it's it's a little glib to say those are the only things that are involved. Uh, and so, you know, the question is, do we understand our neighbors? Do we understand uh, people who don't live near us as as America sorts? You know, there are you know, we've been talking about this incredible polarization and geographic polarization and the like. But I will say that different states are popping up as swing states and purple states than used to be. You know, and you do see migration of states and their allegiances over the years. So, you know, it's hard to, you know, you have to reconcile these different things that are going on. But the, the reality is you have to reconcile that your experience, what you see through your the lenses of your own lives and your own experiences are not necessarily lives as they're lived elsewhere. And this is the humbling truth that one learns as a reporter when you go out with a microphone or a notebook uh, on assignment and you just sort of put your guard down and talk to people at length. What they take as givens, what they take as obvious, what they take as automatic, uh, sort of foundational truths may be very different than where you're coming from. And the fact that in America, a place that we've uh, expected to experience uh, kind of stability and a degree of significant societal consensus uh, are actually fracturing in ways that the rest of the world are looking at, places that we used to say, hey, let's help you knit together with others in a common uh, goal and for the common good. You know, that's a complicating understanding of what America stands for right now. And I think reporters are up to the task as they pull back for sort of 30,000 foot looks at this. But in the moment, it's very hard to translate in a way that makes sense on the air or online. All right. David Fulkenflick, uh, ask for him by name, except no substitute. Uh, <laughs> you, you've got to go talk to your fancy friends at WNYC, but it's been great to have you on. You bet. We'll talk to you in four years, and I hope before then. <laughs> yeah, before then, definitely. So, Michael, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. You know, I mean, because I'm too lazy to think of a new question. But that that whole idea last night where you suddenly think, and, and you know, I know people who are Trump voters, and some of them are real jerks, but some of them are, you know, the kind of person who would offer you some hot coffee if you were a pole standing and you looked cold, you know, and you were holding a Biden sign. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I just feel like we're living alongside people whose value sets are so different uh, from one another that it does constitute a problem that's kind of right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, it constitutes a problem because we're not disagreeing just over values anymore. We're not just disagreeing over facts. We're disagreeing over different ways of trying to figure out what the facts are. And once disagreement gets 
that point. Once it gets to the point where we don't even agree on what shared reality is or even how to determine what shared reality is, it becomes by by just by the very nature of the problem incredibly difficult to understand one another because we don't have any shared common standards of rationality by which to assess each other's views. And that's a big problem. So, you know, what we might say to use some fancy language, there's our political and moral values, but there's also our epistemic values, our values about rationality. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we, we can say that this is, you know, this is a uh, election that was about both kinds of those political values, but also those epistemic values, values of rationality. And people have very different sets of values right now. I think uh, it is a, you know, it is in a way the sharpening to see this election. On the one hand, we see we were sort of confused. How could people vote differently than us? And the Trump folks on the Trump side, I know, uh, are thinking the exact same thing. How can how could it be so close in Wisconsin? People are are wondering on both sides. But part of it is also sharpening because we're realizing that yeah, there really are some fundamental disagreements about very, very basic uh, political and epistemic values going on in this country. And uh, in that sense, this is a cultural uh, election. It is about uh, identity and value. Um, And it's about one side wanting to look, in my view, one side, one part of the electorate wants to look back at what the philosopher Jason Stanley calls the mythic past. They want to think about uh, get America great again, get us back to where we were, to a set of values that they think have been forgotten or trampled on. And then the other, another group which worries about that past and wants, and, and, and the progressives that want to move in a different direction. That fundamentally is a cultural issue and it's, it's really been thrown into sharp relief by what's going on now. Yeah, I, I, we're going to go to a break here. I said this this morning on the wheelhouse that, you know, Trump says so little that's coherent and adhesive uh, uh, in terms of policy that it's kind of, you know, hard to say, well, they like him because of this. I do think one thing uh, that they like about him, there, there's a large swath of America that just kind of doesn't like other countries, doesn't like foreigners, doesn't like immigrants, don't really like treaties, Paris Climate Accords or Iran peace deals or NATO yes. or the World Health Organization right. or any of that stuff. That, can, that stuff can all go screw as far as they're concerned. This is America and that's what matters. And I do think that that's a group of people who I, I, I get it, I guess, you know, it's not what I think. I think it's the opposite. So what I think, but maybe we work, need to work harder on at least understanding that. All right, let's take a quick break. Michael will stay with us. We will probably have Senator Chris Murphy fairly soon as well. Kathy, I said as we boarded a Greyhound in Pittsburgh, Michigan seems like a dream to me now. It took me four days to Hitchhike from Saginaw and I've come to look for America. 
All right, we're back. Uh, these are complicated times. You need good people in complicated times. So I, I am very lucky in that regard. Uh, Kat Pastor is there in the studio making everything run so calmly, you cannot believe it. Uh, and I cannot believe it anyway. Uh, and Jonathan McPants is the producer of this particular episode. I'm not allowed to say what we're doing tomorrow anymore, but we're doing something tomorrow. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. I think we're going to have Bill Curry on. Get excited. And maybe your phone calls also. So, um, uh, we're talking to Michael Lynch right now, professor of philosophy uh, and director of the Humanities Institute at the University of Chicago and the author of Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. Uh, Chris Murphy, we hope, will be joining us quite soon. Uh, and so, Michael, yeah, I don't, maybe I'm harping too much on the same thing, but I do feel that once again, you know, we don't hear each other very well. And sometimes we're saying almost exactly the same thing with just one change. So, you know, I sit there and go, what a terrible president. He's not going to do any of the things the doctors are saying to do. And, and there's this whole other contingent or, who are saying, what a great president. He's not going to let those doctors boss us around. Um, and, and, you know, Obama famously had Henry Louis Gates and the cop uh, who are, uh, tried to arrest him uh, come to the White House and have a beer. And I know that's not really Trump's style, but it kind of is your style, right? There's a way in which I need to have a beer with the person who thinks that it's really cool that the president doesn't let the doctors boss us around. It is, I, I don't know. Does that get us anywhere? Yeah, well, I, I, I think it does. Uh, I think that those sorts of opportunities to have those beers, to have those cups of coffee with people that uh, disagree with you are few and far between right now. And partly because, of course, passion and, and, and convictions are running so hot. I mean, I think one of the things that you're touching on is that, and, and, and we're finding this again, uh, those of us on the left, that we're surprised at what's happened. And this is a theme that you're talking about. Well, part of that is due to the fact that we too have, uh, and this is what David was noting, uh, that people on the left are not immune from a, a certain type of intellectual arrogance where we we think that we understand what the other side is thinking or believing. We think we understand the facts. We think we understand the electorate. We think we have good polling methodologies, et cetera, et cetera. But often what's, and, and, and sometimes we do, but often our views on matters, just like everyone else, right? This is a human problem. Human beings are prone to not be, become know-it-alls when passions run high. We're prone to become, to think of ourselves as not needing to hear from the experience and evidence that other people might bring to the table. Now, I think, you know, right now we have in the White House at the moment, a sort of the poster child for that sort of attitude. Somebody who is, you know, who, who famously said, you know, he he's incredibly humble as, mom, as, you know, maybe more humble than anybody he's ever met. I mean, that's that's arrogance right there. The op, you know, the opposite of of real humility. But yeah, so he's probably not going to lead us up onto that hill, uh, Michael. I just want to no. break in because Senator Murphy uh, has of just course. joined us, and uh, he outranks both of us. So, yeah, um, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, are you there? I'm here. There you are. Okay. So um, I think we, we need to s just sort of start with nuts and bolts here. Uh, obviously, it's starting to look like things are going to come down, maybe to the state of Michigan. Um, uh, th things are certainly going to come down to uh, counts and recounts and uh, legal challenges. How does the U.S. get through this with an outcome that uh, is desirable and we can live with? 
Yeah, we certainly live in a culture at a time of instant gratification in which we expect to uh, be able to know things like election results within hours of the polls closing. That's not historically how things work in this country, and especially in a year like this where you've had all these votes cast by absentee and, frankly, rules set that prevented those votes from being counted until today. It's kind of natural that we should uh, have to wait. I, I feel pretty good about where Joe Biden's going to end up. Um, uh, Bob Casey, who's the senator from Pennsylvania, does believe that Biden's going to win Pennsylvania and perhaps win it with a pretty significant margin. Folks feel equally confident about uh, Michigan. Um, it may be that by the end of today, you know, Biden can make some more definitive uh, announcement. And Georgia is obviously still a wild card. And, and so, I mean, let's just imagine a world in which, uh, you know, Biden wins, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona and Georgia. Um, which I think is still a possible outcome. If, if you told most Democrats that that's how this thing was going to end up uh, a week ago or uh, two weeks ago, I think people would have been pretty satisfied. We obviously built up these expectations that we were going to win 538 electoral votes, um, and 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 the consequence would be Donald Trump's head exploding and vanishing from uh, American politics forever. Uh, those were uh, a little bit too uh, too too high an idea of what was going to happen if he wins. If Biden wins, uh, then he's president, and that's a great thing for the country. And if he wins by a little bit of a margin, uh, I think that's uh, great, too. I like that scenario there. If, if the Senate thing doesn't work out, you just start writing for Saturday Night Live. So uh, the head exploding was a great touch. So, um, yeah, I, you know, on the other hand, there's and we know this from 2000, too, right? There's the conversation about how things uh, turn up, how, how things are processed. If you follow the rules, if you do everything the right way, if you follow each each line to its proper conclusion, how things wind up. And then there's the things that get said about it. There's the kind of competing narratives about what's actually happening, happening here. And we have never had anybody. Uh, I mean, you know, Bush and Gore had sort of differences of, of opinion and Gore, you know, ulti maybe we should start with start with that. Gore ultimately decided before he had expended every round of rhetorical and legal ammunition that it was time to stop. Um, I'm assuming that you're thinking that uh, Vice President Biden should go way past that stop sign that made Gore stop, if in fact there is any such stop sign in this process. Uh, agreed. Uh, in this case, it is incumbent upon Vice President Biden to exhaust every remedy, uh, every political remedy, every legal remedy. Um, but it is not Joe Biden that's going to have to be on the offense here. It is, in fact, uh, going to be President Trump because it is likely that he's going to have to go to courts with some uh, sort of fantastically innovative legal theory to try to overcome what will likely be pretty big margins in the tens of thousands of votes in places like Wisconsin and uh, and Pennsylvania. Uh, and so the burden here is going to be on the president. And I just don't sort of see what legal theory he invents that, frankly, even ends up ever getting to the Supreme Court uh, that uh, could could create um, a, a, a real legal challenge and legal problem uh, here. Um, let me ask you another question, uh, Senator Murphy, which is, you know, uh, it looks as though uh, President uh, Vice President Biden, as you say, you know, has a has a path that he can follow. And, and certainly in the popular vote, he's probably uh, going to exceed some of the performances that have preceded him. 
But, you know, there was sort of another narrative, and I know that your party thought about taking back the Senate. That's clearly not going to happen. Enormous amounts of money uh, was expended uh, on a lot of races which left Republican incumbents uh, in place. Uh, and it looks as though, in fact, the House may in fact lose uh, some net number of seats uh, on the Democratic side to the Republican side. Is there a conversation that you can describe that needs to happen inside the Democratic Party uh, about that, about uh, is it a problem with message? Is it too much intramural bickering? Did the presidential debates kind of set up a narrative that scared people? What's your working hypothesis about all this? Well, I don't have one yet, but I think it is really important for Democrats to do a full postmortem here, frankly, in a way that we didn't do after 2016. We were just, you know, so immediately launched into building this resistance movement that we didn't have the chance to kind of sit back and, you know, understand why this guy had gotten elected. And this um, this year, there is substantial confirmation that Democrats are having a permanently hard time competing, competing in portions of the country that we frankly need to win if we ever want to control the Senate again. Um, and I don't yet have a fully sort of developed theory as to why that is, except this. Um, you know, Donald Trump managed to maintain a position as the outsider, even though he occupied the White House for four years. Um, Joe Biden was, you know, I think cast in many of these parts of the country as the insider candidate. And I think the Democratic Party, you know, though we would sort of claim to be fighting against corporate interests and billionaire interests, you know, haven't always walked the walk in the way that we talk the talk. And so I, I do think that we have to understand how upset people are at Washington, how upset they are at the status quo, and we have to decide whether. You know, we really are a party that unites around the kind of broad, revolutionary economic and political change that people want. Um, that was obviously Bernie Sanders' attraction, um, but it also was Donald Trump's attraction. And and I think that's a I think that's a crisis inside the party that we have to figure out. How do we not become the party of the status quo? Uh, as I think in some parts we were viewed as being in the 2016 and 2020 election. Right. And I first of all, I think that's a great analysis. Uh, I would add to this that in a way, the party has kind of been trapped in two cycles now into running against Donald Trump and his ideas. Uh, And I do remember my son in 2016 talking about Sanders and saying, I know exactly what he stands for. I know exactly what his message is and what he thinks should happen. And I don't have that feeling about a lot of politicians, including Vice, uh, including uh, uh, Hillary Clinton at that time. So I don't know maybe if you can sort of amplify that. Does it does does the party need to have one message that is as crystal clear as what Sanders said? This will probably be the end of the show. So say something really stirring. <laughs> no, I, listen. I, I think we can't be afraid of big ideas, and we can't be afraid of calling out who's screwing ordinary Americans. I mean, listen, unfortunately, in this country, people do sort of think oppositionally. And Donald Trump had a lot of people to blame for what was happening to you. Um, Democrats, you know, not only have to have big ideas like Bernie Sanders has, and it would be great if we could be unified behind those big ideas, but also not be afraid to, you know, call out the the, the plutocracy in this country um, that is keeping a lot of people's wages absolutely frozen. And I, we just, you know, we, we don't like talking in those terms in general as a party. We, we like subtlety and nuance, but I don't know that that's how voters make up their minds in the end. 
end. And so uh, we're ultimately going to have to decide to meet them where they are rather than where some of the sort of progressive elites are. All right. You left time on the clock. So I'll ask you, we only got two minutes left, though. Um, you know, McConnell is going to keep his position. Uh, imagine that President Biden is inaugurated. How do you avoid gridlock now? How do you avoid the kind of gridlock that has stalled so many desirable things in Congress? I mean, it's super frightening uh, because I'm not sure why you wouldn't believe past will be predicate. In 2009, we were in the middle of an economic meltdown and Mitch McConnell did everything he could to stop President Obama from being able to pass a recovery bill. Um, ironically, it was Susan Collins who, in the end, uh, cast the 60th vote for that piece of legislation. I, I guess I, you know, sort of have to believe that the same thing is going to happen again, that Mitch McConnell is going to, you know, work against Joe Biden's efforts to try to control the pandemic and get the country back up and operating. The only counter narrative is this idea that there is a unique relationship between Biden and McConnell. And there is. Um, they have worked together. They have passed compromise legislation together, and maybe Joe Biden can work some magic. Um, but I know how McConnell has operated the entire time that I've been there. Uh, I think uh, unless Biden is able to um, to do something special with inside that relationship, McConnell's going to end up acting like he has in the past. That's not a super um, in- encouraging way to think about the next two years, but uh, McConnell is McConnell, and I'm not sure it is AG's changing. All right. So now that is the end of the show. Chris Murphy is the U.S. Senator from the state of Connecticut. We're also lucky to have Michael Lynch and David Fulkenflick with us today. The Zara Nafisi will come back as soon as she possibly can. Thanks to all of you who listened. Thanks to, thanks to our guests. Thanks to our producer, Jonathan McPants. And we will be back tomorrow, possibly with Bill Curry. Get excited. Darn it. Get excited. <laughs>